Hi, I'm Sam Manikin. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Justin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Edmark. Glenn Hickstead. Woody from Woody's Wheel Works. Bernard Smith. Gregory Frey. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tarts. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millwall. Yeah. Colbert. Joe Rush. Christelle Bayer-Vajou. Lawrence Harking. Jeremy Krieger. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Susan Johnson. Larry Clyde. Robert Witt. Spencer Conway. Ted Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Lisa. Nita. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Jim Martin, this is Adventure Rider Radio, and today we have Sam Chisholm, Teach Me to Surf, and I'll show you how to ride a horse. We also have Brett Tax with another segment for rider skills. Stay with us, we got a good one for you. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, serving adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, and get this, it comes with a lifetime warranty. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motor Tech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. Greenchiliadv.com. Sam Chisholm decided to quit his job in Australia as a helicopter pilot and head off on a motorcycle adventure. And his motorcycle adventure took an interesting twist when the bike he bought had a surfboard attached to it. And Sam decided, well, I may as well learn to surf. Hi, yeah, my name's Sam Chisholm. Uh, I'm from Australia. Uh, I am currently on a trip from Ushuaia to Alaska on a KLR 650. I've been going seven seven months now and about halfway uh, currently in Costa Rica. Sam, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Hi, Jim. Thanks. It's good to be here. I, you know, it's it's it's. I, I feel bad pulling you away from that time. You must because you, you're in Costa Rica right now. I mean, it must be horrible for you. And I and I hate to drag you away from this to do this interview. Yeah, I know. Um, I just had to come back from the surf. Actually, went went for a surf this morning. The waves are quite nice here. The weather's beautiful and sunny. So oh, you poor uh, thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm locked inside <laughs> just so I can just so I can have a chat to you. Right about now, life <laughs> probably doesn't feel like it gets much better than where you're at right now. No, it's uh, it's pretty good. The freedom—I've never had freedom like this. 
um, before in my life. It's every morning you wake up and <laughs> we don't have a plan or a schedule. It just whatever's in front of the day, you, um, it's great. It's a great feeling just to take it as it comes. Yeah, it's it's um it's it's almost like I mean for me it, it takes me back to school. You know, it's like when summertime comes and you have absolutely no commitments. You can just do what you want. It's all about you. Yeah, and that's one of the beauties of traveling like this. You can just um you can let the trip grow organically and quite often meet people and and they know a good place that otherwise you wouldn't find out about. So uh, you can just follow your nose, which is uh, it's a pretty special thing to be able to do. I want to talk to you about your trip that you've done so far, and I love the fact that you're in the middle of it. I think this is really neat because it's it's all still live for you. But let's let's look at where you come from. You come from Australia, and um, you're a helicopter pilot. Yeah, I've been a helicopter pilot for the last ten years, um, working in the northern parts of Australia, mainly with agriculture. Uh, the farms up there are so big that we have to. Uh, chase the, gather the corral the cows with helicopters rather than horses and motorbikes. Kind of a bizarre scene. It's certainly not something you picture. At least not coming from North America, you don't picture using a helicopter in my mind anyway to to uh, get cows to together and round them up. So I'm sort of curious. I can't help but ask this: How do you round up a cow with a helicopter? <laughs> Good question. It's um. <sighs> It's more like uh, it's sort of similar to riding a horse and, and a motorbike, but because the, the area is so big, you, you need to be able to use the helicopter to cover the country. So you, you start at one end. They don't like the noise, so you start making the noise and they, they gather at the watering points. Um, you kind of, yeah, you just keep going round and round and round until they get closer and closer and then you walk them to the yards or, uh, yeah, wherever you're going with the helicopter. It's... It's sort of hard to explain, but it's really simple. So you're basically just flying back and forth, almost intimidating them or aggravating them to, to walk on to the, the directions that you want. Do you have to land it and then get out and sort of lead them one at a time at one point? <laughs> no, sometimes you have to get out to open gates and things like that. Um, but yeah, most of the time, and fuel up, you have to fuel up every three hours. We do, um, the area that you cover would have, taken 10 horsemen two or three weeks to muster back in the day but we can do it with one person now in the helicopter in in a day so it's really really efficient way of moving cattle oh wow yeah that's that's a, a huge difference now with that are you staying out there like you're saying you're fueling up every three hours are you are you living in the outback at that point or do you go back home every night uh no quite often you're living there's people so the farmers are on the ground as well they bring out fuel um you still you still work together with horses and motorbikes so sometimes you'll take the cows to a watering point and then the horses will take them from there so yeah we're living out of the helicopter i've been living out of a bag for the last 10 years as a sort of nomad i guess um yeah we go from farm to farm often camping out uh we get home once once a month i guess would be about average um it's yeah it pays pays to be busy it's nice so you usually have a downtime each year but you quit your job basically yeah, normally have a downtime um, over the summer because it's it's just too hot uh, in Australia. So have downtime to to go home and see the family and uh, or go travelling as I've done quite often. But I guess one thing led to another, and the, I caught the travelling bug, and I guess I wanted a little bit more. What what made you think of motorcycles? Uh, I did a trip last year. 
with a couple of friends. We bought a car uh, for $500 in London and we drove to Mongolia. And I met a guy in Kazakhstan. He was from uh, Israel and he was traveling on a motorbike and he'd been going for the last two years on this motorbike. And I'd never seen an adventure bike before. He had his whole home on this motorbike. We camped with him for a few days and I just thought that's that's a way to travel. It's just so much freedom and, um, it, yeah, really appealed to me. So why the KLR650? Uh, I guess it was it was in my budget. Um I I didn't really know much about it and and I think it seemed like a pretty good entry bike as well. Growing up on a farm, I knew quite a lot about mechanics and this sort of seemed like one that was easy to fix and easy to keep on the road. And I wanted to do South America, North America, but starting in South America, uh, I didn't think there'd be parts and um, I thought we'd have to get pretty inventive with our mechanicing skills. So I guess the KLR seemed like the perfect choice. It's robust and adventure ready. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the, the KLR 650 for sure. So when yeah. you were planning this trip that, you, that you're doing right now, that you're halfway through, what was the idea of it? Uh, it didn't, I didn't really have too many ideas. I didn't know a lot about the geography of South America. I just wanted to go from the bottom um, and end up at the top. Where the planning stage wasn't really, that that didn't really come into it very much. I just knew that um, I wanted to get down to the bottom, Patagonia, uh, and and sort of see where it took me. And I found a couple of bikes on Horizons Unlimited, um, which worked out really well. Uh, some friends, had, well, now friends, the, the people that I bought the bike off, they had come all the way down from Alaska. So I got a few tips off them and, and picked up the bike in Chile. So I rode from Chile all the way down to uh, to Ushuaia, met a friend. I rode with a friend down there, actually. We met another friend, so there was three of us, um, and, yeah, headed off. But the, the planning, we had no idea what we were in for. It was a pretty steep learning curve for the first month or two, that was for sure. What a great way to do it, to, to buy a bike, especially from another traveler, because I think that, like, you know, if you buy it off eBay, it's, uh, it's a crapshoot, really. You have no idea what you're dealing with. But usually if you're dealing with another traveler, you're going to have like-minded people. They're going to be honest with you. And the bike is where you want it. Yeah, I was really surprised how straight up they were. And really with that, with that adventure bike community, I was really, really blown away because people are just, they're straight up with you and getting a bike that's, um, that's been on the road, it's, it, all the little problems are ironed out. I didn't know the first thing about an adventure bike and it, it had the panniers all set up and all the other little bits and pieces, I jacket and a helmet with the bike. So literally all I had to do was chuck my bag on and um, start it up and away I went. Oh, nice. And are you traveling by yourself? You mentioned friends. No, traveling, well, there was three of us at the start. Um, so Mick and I, we bought the bikes off two, two other travelers in Chile and then in Santiago and rode down and another friend bought a bike down there. So all three of us were, were in the same boat. I kind of convinced them. I said, I'm going to do this trip. Um, Mick and I got really drunk one night and he decided that he was going to come along and then the other friend, Eusti, he had grown up riding horses all his life and did his license, uh, motorbike license, two weeks before he came over and he sort of just decided he was going to come on board. So for him, he'd never ridden a bike or, or done anything of the sort. So he probably had the steepest learning curve. Mick and I grew up riding bikes on the farm, but we hadn't done yeah, anything like this. So we, we kind of learned together. It, it's been fun. 
Did you get your bike license just for this trip or did you already have it? No, I got it for this trip. I did mine um, a couple of months before I came over. Okay, I, then, I guess if you're growing up with it, using it on the farm, because I know you guys use it in Australia for, for herding, and you'd already mentioned that as well, um, but it, it's a pretty common thing on the farm. It's just a farm tool, right? Yeah, it's just a farm tool, and you jump on the bike and go and check the waters or uh, herding the cows, but um, it's not extreme <laughs> It's not extreme enduro and things like that. You get, you're on the dirt um, cruising around the farm, but it's it's all pretty... It's just a tool for us. I but guess you do learn how to ride, though. I mean, you, you are hitting yeah. some, some gnarly stuff. You're you're riding off the road. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Mick, he's he was pretty good on a dirt bike. Um, he'd spent a lot more time riding them growing up than me. Um, but he'd never ridden on the road, and it was yeah the difference for us. And hand we the farm bikes are so light and easy, and you never got. You're never carting much gear, and the weight was a huge. That was probably the biggest thing that we had to adjust to. Carrying so much weight, especially the KLR. I mean, when you fill up the tank and put all your gear on, that's a lot of weight, heavy bike. And yeah, we weren't exactly um, very well prepared when we started. To we, uh, the people that we bought the bikes off had actually put surfboard racks on the KLRs, and they'd been doing a surfing trip all the way down. So basically, we thought we'll take up surfing um, and <laughs> put some surfboards on there and then we bought some musical instruments and we, we were so overloaded. I think I've got I've got some spear, some flippers to go fishing and snorkeling <laughs> gear. We've got so much stuff which it's just probably unnecessary but it's made the trip a lot more fun. Did you play the musical instruments before or are you just learning that as well? No, just learning that as well. <laughs> I love that. So you didn't <laughs> surf before. You saw the racks and thought, wow, we may as well use those. Yeah, exactly. I have um, yet to see guys, a, a bike with a, uh, like I've seen pictures of them. I've seen lots of pictures of them, but I have yet to see exactly how it's fastened on. Is it no problem getting on and off the bike? Yeah, uh, it's a bit of a problem when you drop the bike on the surfboard yeah. side trying to pick it up again. But, I can imagine. Uh, yeah, no, they've, they're actually really good. Down in Patagonia, it was super windy. I think we had 80k an hour winds and that was about, well, we shouldn't have taken surfboards to Patagonia to start with, but... That was about the only time we had trouble was with that big wind. You'd get blown across the road and going past trucks and things. But, yeah, apart from that, they actually sit on there quite well and it's just a it's just a little bar coming off the side, coming off the crash bars, I guess. Um, so I had a pretty bad crash in Ecuador. I hit a cow um, going quite fast and I landed on that side and I think it saved me. I snapped the nose. I snapped my surfboard and took all the fiberglass off it, but, um, yeah, I came away without a scratch, so I was very lucky. Oh, wow. How about the cow? Uh, the cow got up and ran, ran away, so I don't know how, how you can come from a farm and hitting a cow, but, yeah, <laughs> I, I managed it. Just didn't see it? Yeah, uh, it came out of the jungle. I was just cruising along, and um, the, in Ecuador, quite often, the, the jungle sort of grows halfway under the road, and a group of about 10 of them ran straight in front of me. I locked on the brakes, but, yeah... That was, I couldn't do much about it, unfortunately. But yeah, luckily the cow got up and ran back into the jungle. Cows nowadays, they just don't seem to have the same awareness, do they? No, no, I was thoroughly shocked. <laughs> the the surfboards, though, and I don't mean to harp on the surfboard thing, but the surfboards. So have have you got enough use out of them that it seems worthwhile riding all the time with this great big board on the side of your bike? Yeah, definitely. And I think our trip's sort of being geared more towards surfing now. So to start off with, it's, I guess the reason that we bought the surfboards, A, it looked fun, but the, 
Matt and Heather. So we bought the bikes off them to start with. They sold their bikes and bought horses to ride down to the rest of the way down to Patagonia. Mm-hmm. So we sort of did this knowledge exchange. They didn't know anything about horses. We didn't know anything about surfing. And so we taught them how to ride the horses and they taught us how to go surfing. And, and since then, um, coming north, we've actively looked out for surf spots and it's kind of fun you do these missions and go down little dirt roads that you wouldn't normally go down just to find a nice uh, surf break and stay there for a week sometimes just camping on the beach it's yeah it's been really really good added a nice level and nice dynamic to the trip yeah it's nice to have a theme isn't it you know because it it does give you um just just something to aim for we're on a trip right now we're traveling and we've been looking for uh, anything to do with gold rush or or ghost towns and it just gives you that uh, that direction so something catches your eye and it takes you down a road next thing you know you discover incredible things yeah and as well meeting people that like-minded people uh, so we've met so many great people. The surf community, I guess, is kind of like the adventure bike community. You come across people with motorbikes and they're just, you've got so much to talk about straight away and the surfing thing's the same and the hospitality that comes out of both communities. People say, oh, I've got a friend here, go and visit them or I know this really good spot up there. So that aspect of it has been really awesome. For us with the surfboards, I guess that's one thing that I didn't really say is you can stop at a place for a week and you've got something to do. Like you don't have to go looking for little things to do. And I'm not big on museums and I really like the history and stuff, but the typical touristy stuff doesn't really appeal to me. So um, that surfing side of it, you can go to somewhere, there's no tourists, you just by yourself on the beach with a few coconuts and um, you can stay there a week and you've got some activity that you know you're never bored. So that's um, yeah, it's really nice just having your own freedom when you travel like that, the same as what you guys are doing. And are you a good surfer now? <laughs> no, but I'm getting better. <laughs> <laughs> when you get home, will you be able to take this surfing skill and put it into use? Yeah, so I've grown up in northern Australia and there's crocodiles and not much surfing, but yeah, I'm really going to have to assess where I live now because I think it's going to be one of those things I'm going to take forever. I really, it didn't take long to become hooked on it and it's, um, yeah, I I think I'm going to be doing it forever, hopefully. Oh, that's really neat. How about the bike riding? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely, I don't think I'll travel another way. Um, I just, we had to catch a bus the other day to go and see something when we were in Medellin to go out to the lake because our bikes were at the mechanics and, um, yeah, getting on public transport, that's another thing that hopefully I'll never have to do that. I can ride a motorbike everywhere I go. What's the biggest hurdle that you've run into since you started out? I mean, since the whole adventure bike thing was new for you? Uh, I think probably the biggest hurdle has been just letting go. Uh, of waking up in the morning and not having a schedule and not having something to do. I, I don't think the riding of the bikes, I guess that that sort of grew and grew and you get confidence out of every day you get a little bit better. But waking up and having having an adventure and, and not having a schedule or a routine or things that you have to do, just being dynamic, waking up and and letting the day take you rather than having your routine to follow. I think that's been the hardest thing for me, um, if that makes sense, to to just go out and, and live each day as it comes. Because why? Because you feel like you should be doing something, you mean? Yeah, I think because the... I guess my whole life, um, you've always had... A, I've always had a job or I've had something to do or responsibility. 
Um, not that that all goes away, but it's just the freedom accepting uh, I don't really know how to put it into words, but accepting that freedom and, and just letting it letting uh, letting the adventure happen, I guess. It's, I don't know if that makes sense. It's very vague. No, I, I think it does make sense. I understand what you're doing. You're, you're sort of struggling with the fact that you've, you've got to, I guess you've got to chill some, you know, you've got to, you've just got to relax and, and, and let things yeah. happen. Whereas you're sort of used to, to driving it rather than just sort of sitting back and letting it pass by in front of your face. Have, have you got the hang of it now? Yeah, I've got the hang of it now. Not, not much phases me. I'm pretty chilled out at the moment. So what's your typical morning? Uh, typical morning. Well, this morning got up at about six o'clock, jumped on the bikes. Um, we rode a couple of, uh, I think about 20 kilometers down to this little, um, little beach break called Playa Grande, went, Playa Grande, went for a surf there, uh, came back, had a coffee, had a bit of breakfast. I think we're going to stay here another night. Um, so we can surf again in the morning and then we'll pack up and there's a little, uh, beach called Witch's Rock which is in a national park and it'll take us about, I think it's about 100 k's from here. It'll, it'll take us a couple of hours to get there. Apparently the road's pretty bad um, in a national park and we'll camp there for a day or two um, and go surfing. And then after that, probably yeah, head up to Nicaragua uh, and surf along the coast through Nicaragua, um, Honduras, El Salvador. And then I think we want to go across to the Caribbean side to Belize. But so far, all we know is which is rock, and after that, we'll we'll keep making the plans. So, you, what are you governed by right now? I mean, have you saved up all your money? You're, you're funded that way, or are you looking for work as you go? We haven't been looking for work here, but I think when I get to the states, um, I'm gonna. I plan to do the winter season in Canada uh, to get me through to Alaska. So I was sort of budgeted up to up to winter and. We've been living pretty cheap. We've been wild camping where we can, um, staying at hostels and and cooking for ourselves. So we've kind of yeah. I know I know where I can get to, and um, yeah, plan is to work in the states or Canada over winter, uh, and then head on up to Alaska with a few more funds next year. What's your budget for on a daily basis? Originally, we budgeted fifty dollars a day. Um, that was so Chile was a little bit more expensive, but if we could stay under fifty dollars a day with fuel um, and accommodation or whatever else, we were doing pretty well. But since we got, um, we were doing some big days down in Patagonia. We were riding sometimes five hundred k's a day. We did some really big days, but on average, I guess about three hundred k's a day. So you've got a tank of fuel, which is twenty dollars, I guess. Um, and yeah, since we've hit Bolivia and Peru and everything, it got a lot cheaper. So, uh, I guess probably half that it's down to about $25, $30 a day at the moment. Nice. Of course, that's going to change dramatically as soon as you get to North America. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got to make the most of it here while we can. With your helicopter license to, to fly, will you be able to fly that in the U S or Canada? Yeah, Canada. There's a lot of work, um, and a, a lot of Australian pilots go over to Canada. So, I have when I get to Vancouver to to be able to fly there, I need to do um, a conversion, which takes a week, and then after that, I'll be looking for a job. So, I think the plan for me is once the Alaska trip's done, is to come back to Vancouver and and do that, um, and try and work in Canada for a year or so, and then um, explore the states. Uh, I think I'll upgrade my motorbike when I get to the States because uh, mine's going to be in a pretty bad shape by the time I get up there. And then after the, 
the Canada. I've got a working visa, so after that finishes, um, yeah, I hope to be able to ride home through uh, through Russia and the stands and back down through Asia, but that's still a long way off. Very nice. This could end up being a lot longer trip. Yeah, yeah, a lot longer trip. Hopefully, um, yeah, hopefully the working in Canada and I can save up enough money and, and be able to do that. The only thing I have to do is work out how to include Africa into that, and I guess it's around the world. <laughs> yeah, well, if it sounds like you're on the right track for sure. So the plan is to get to Canada, I guess, just for the winter? Yeah, I think uh, hopefully be up in Canada by November. I originally thought it would be doable this year, but uh, I don't do very well in the cold. And, and from what I've heard, September's about the latest you want to be in Alaska. So, um, yeah, I think I'll get up and wait the winter out in Canada and then go up there in the spring, I guess. Yeah. When you say upgrade your KLR, are you talking about changing the type of bike or just fix it up? Uh, I think I'll change the type of bike. I do... I do really like the KLR, but I've seen a lot of a lot of people riding the BMWs down here, and they look a lot more comfortable than mine. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think you're going to gain anything else from the BMW over the KLR? I'm not really sure. Uh, I think it's all it's all a preference thing, and I'm really I really like my KLR, but um, I don't think I'll cart the surfboard to Alaska as fun as it is. I think it'll be too cold to surf up there, so um, I might try and sell that to someone who who is keen on a surfing trip um, to take back down. I think what I've got at the moment is perfectly suited to Latin America and, and this lifestyle. But, um, yeah, on the on the big big days, I do get a sore bum riding for 12 hours. Yeah, well, the KLR is known for that. What year KLR is it? Uh, 2008. Oh, yeah, so it's the newer style one. It burns a little bit of oil. Yeah, it's got the big bore kit. It's um, the oh. 680, I think. So it doesn't use as much. The other, Eusty, my friend, he uses a lot more oil than mine. But um, yeah, we're, we're onto that. We have to carry a little bit of oil. Do you but notice I a think, big power difference between the two bikes? Not really. I've jumped on him. His, his is a 2015, uh, and we swap bikes a bit. And uh, to be honest, I don't really think it's made that much of a difference. Um, I had a really loud exhaust on mine. The spark arrestor came out. So the only difference I noticed was that throaty rumble. I used to set off car alarms um, <laughs> driving down the street. I couldn't go into a supermarket because literally every car in there would be beeping at me. So <laughs> I had to buy another buy another exhaust. But the, yeah, the power side, I guess they're pretty evenly matched. So what have you learned so far in this trip? Um, learn... <sighs> Yeah, learned quite a lot. I think um, you learn a lot about yourself doing doing trips like this and, and rethink where you're at. But um, I, I suppose skill-wise, learned to surf, which is which is good, and I think hopefully I'll use that for the rest of my life. Spanish, my Spanish is getting a lot better. Um, we did a few lessons down in the south and it was hard for us to start with, but now... I think I'm pretty good at explaining bike parts in Spanish to the mechanics because I've been to just about most of them on the way up. Uh, hopefully I'll keep keep that skill and, and that's one of the things you're going to be always learning. So, um, yeah, really want to really get the Spanish nailed. Um, the ukulele, I'm still pretty bad at the ukulele, but that's another skill that I've picked up on the way and it's kind of nice. That's a good instrument, though, isn't it? Because it, it, I mean, it, it yeah. doesn't. It's not exactly a like a finely tuned instrument in my mind. It, it has a bit of a odd sound to it, anyway. 
the best thing about a ukulele is when you pick it up, the audience, they don't expect anything. So if you make a sound, <laughs> they're generally pleased. <laughs> That's, um, and they're tough as well. So all the crashes that I've had all times I've dropped my bike and banged the ukulele, they're a great, great travel instrument. I haven't broken it. Nice. Hey, yeah. well, you're, you were also trying to raise money for a charity. Can you talk about that? Um, yeah, so we've, we've sort of got an association with uh, Tie Up the Black Dog, which is a charity in Australia. It's um, because we're all from rural, rural areas, it, they focus on um, a raise, raising awareness for depression and mental health issues in the, in the rural community. So it's something that's kind of close to our heart. Um, we haven't been working with them for that long to start off with. We, we just sort of were doing the trip, but I think it's nice now that combining it um, and combining the trip and, and helping, helping them out has really, um, it's really added a nice level, level to our, to our trip, like a, a nice purpose, I guess. So they're, they're only a small charity. Um, we are just starting some small fundraising stuff for them. I guess their main thing, it's not about the money, it's more about raising awareness and, um, and giving an avenue for people, for sufferers or people that know sufferers of mental health problems to give them a, an avenue to support. The, the mental health issues is something that you guys have had to deal with or something somebody that's close to you through people you know? Um, yeah, I think we all have no, well, we all know someone that's been affected by that, especially in the rural community because it's such, it's, it is such a small community. And on this trip, we've had a few, a few issues. I think one of their main things is about resilience and, and sometimes on the road and your bike's broken down and you just don't know what you're going to do. And it's a really, that's one of the things we've learned is you have to be, to pull on a trip like this, I think you have to have a certain level of mental toughness. And even if you don't have it to start with, you'll acquire it on the way. So I guess it's been resilient and, and not getting down because something always happens, something, someone always comes through or something always happens to get you out of the situation, which is, um, it's, you just got to stay strong when the chips are down. Yeah, because when you're in a, a strange place and you've got nothing to turn to, not the, the infrastructure that you're used to from your home country, then it's got to be a lot more difficult to deal with problems. Yeah, definitely. And sometimes like conveying in a different language and you can't convey what you want, it's really, really, really hard. Uh, and you don't, you think sometimes when I had that crash in Ecuador, I thought my trip was going to be over. And um, times like that, like I was down for a couple of days, but you, you always find a way to bounce back. Um, and I suppose that's the same in life. Uh, you've, you've just got to be, just got to keep, keep strong when the going's tough. So yeah, really learnt a lot through that, and I think it ties in really well with this with this charity because that's what that's what life's all about. You've been traveling with with friends. Do you think that's changed maybe your experience? It would have to have changed it from traveling by yourself. But do you think it's helped or hindered? Uh, that's a good question. It's we've talked about that quite often, um, and I think. The best part about traveling with friends is when you see something really amazing or you go somewhere really amazing or bad things happen but those those things you always seem to talk about and remember with a fondness is um, having having people to share that experience with is the best thing about traveling with people. And I guess traveling with three people, I've found now that we're traveling with two, three people you tend to stick in your group a bit more. With two people you meet a lot more people. 
Um, and that's that adds a nice dynamic to it. And then the other thing, we've all had moments, not that long, but a few days a week where we've travelled by ourselves. Quite often, um, if one of us has broken down somewhere and the other two go ahead and go to the beach or something and wait for them. But we've had that time alone and, and travelling by yourself, that's, um, yeah, you miss out, I guess, on those experiences, being able to share those experiences with someone and go, hey, you remember that time we did this? But then you meet so many people and I think that's probably the biggest thing traveling by yourself is is those connections you make on the road. So, yeah, it's a really good question. I don't know what I prefer. Um, I think by the time I get to Canada, Eusti, he has to – well, he's going to finish his trip in Mexico. So I guess the States and Canada will be on my own. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know what I prefer. I think it's good – it's nice to have a mix. And I guess if you're traveling by yourself, you sort of – you meet people on the road. We met a couple of other bikers on the road and travelled with them. And when I was by myself, I met another biker and we travelled together for a little bit and then went our separate ways. But I guess you always you're never you're never alone um, when you're travelling by yourself because you meet so many people. Do you think when you're travelling with a, a couple of friends as well that it makes you um, just a little bit more confident when you go into a place? You know, you've got to, you're sort of watching each other's back. You're taking care of each other, and you sort of relax and enjoy areas more than what you would if you're if you're having to watch your bike and watch your back and your pack and all the other sort of stuff? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think you can get paranoid too with security and things like that, but going into a, going into a place for us, we're not, yeah, we know we've got each other's back and, and it does make you relax a lot more and I think people see that too, especially locals. They see if you're relaxed, I think in a big group you're overconfident and you're together, but just with two of you and you, they can, I think, people feel a little bit more comfortable approaching you because you, you sort of don't look nervous and out of place. And I think people don't take advantage of you as much when you're like that. But with security, we've sort of, we've been cautious all the way. We haven't had any problems, but sometimes if there's an area we don't feel comfortable about, one of us will go into the supermarket and one will stay by the bike. So that kind of aspect is really, that's really good. I think you can do it by yourself, but yeah, you definitely relax and enjoy it a bit more when you, when you feel a bit more comfortable. What tips do you have that you've learned so far on this? You've been out for how long first? Uh, this is the seventh month. Seventh month. Yeah. So, so after seventh seven months, month, seven months on the road on your KLR 650, traveling along with your surfboard, what tips do you have for somebody else who, who might be considering this? Um, go light. Pack as light as you can. I've been throwing stuff out since Patagonia or giving things <laughs> away. <laughs> uh, yeah, you just... I guess we've got the the surfboards and stuff, which so it's a little bit hypocritical. But now I'm down to a, a couple of t-shirts. I I really don't think I've got that much stuff. All the tools that I wasn't using, I've fixed a lot of things on the bike now. And anything that anything that you don't use for a month, you can just chuck it away and forget about it. You don't need it. That's one of the biggest things. The lighter you are, the easier the easier it's become. Another tip: don't take your surfboards to Patagonia. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I'm going to write that one down here, Sam, because that's one that needs to be posted for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's definitely that's definitely one. Um, I think with the, with the traffic down here, for us, we've never ridden on the right side of the road. I guess for you guys it's pretty normal, but for us that was a new element to start with. We got used to it pretty quickly and it hasn't been a problem, but um, especially with three guys and and – you get a little bit encouraged to someone goes a bit faster and someone goes a bit faster and there's a time to go fast and hammer around and have fun, especially on the dirt. But um, I think 
one thing uh, over the course of the seven months, we've all slowed down a lot and become a lot more sensible in our riding. Um, and that was something I didn't think would be very important, but I guess on the big trips you want to make it there and, and there's so many times where you've lost in your own world and not concentrating and if you're speeding or something like that, it, it's always, uh, we've had some really close calls and I think you become more sensible and really it's about getting there, it's not, not about getting there the fastest and I guess, uh, yeah, just it's probably been worse because we've had three guys but that's definitely something that I've learned is just slowing down and taking your time, it, it makes it a lot easier in the end. Well, Sam, it was great talking to you and getting to know you a little bit. I'd love to connect with you again when you get up to Canada to get your perspective yeah. on what it's like to travel by yourself, maybe get another little check-in from you on the trip. Yeah, that'd be great. Be definitely more than happy to do that. Yeah, we'll have to do that. Sam, thank you very much. No worries. Thanks, Jim. Thanks a lot. And I've been speaking with Sam Chisholm. You can find out more about Sam and his adventure as he goes, because he's in the middle of it right now, by visiting his website, www.wayofftrack.com.au. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. But don't go anywhere just yet, because in a few minutes, we've got Rider Skills coming up with Brett Tax. You better get your pen and paper ready for this one. Now, Aerostitch has been a show supporter for some time, and if you've been listening to this show, you probably already know that. Make sure you drop by their website, aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. When you go to that URL, they know, first of all, that you came from Adventure Rider Radio, but it's also going to get you 10% off your first order or free shipping if you're a repeat customer on your next order. So that's a deal that you, you can't go wrong with. Now, I, I got to tell you, I mean, you know, if you've listened to me talk about Aerostitch, I'm an Aerostitch fan through and through. I'm now riding with the Air, the Darien jacket and the 81 pants, which I absolutely love. Best riding suit, hands down, I've ever had. If you want to look at that, just drop by their website and look at their, their Darien jacket and the 81 pants. Uh, if you're like me, I'm, I'm certain that you're not going to go wrong. But one of the things I was going to mention, they've got so many things on their website that are rider related because it's all motorcycle stuff. I mean, the entire company is built by motorcyclists for motorcyclists. But if you go into their tool section, they have an array of tools, a massive array of tools. And one of the things I came across here was a no contact tire temperature sensor. And when you go through the tool section, you'll find it in here. And it actually gives you real tire temperature while you're riding. It says that um, it's got this little sensor that you put down by your front tire. And whether you're on the street or wherever, you can monitor your tire temperature, which I think is pretty neat. I mean, it's just an interesting thing. I don't know if it's, it's something that I would get necessarily for my bike. Maybe I would. I don't know. But um, it's certainly interesting the amount of things they have on here. And I'll tell you where you'll really benefit get their catalog. If you haven't done it already, drop by their website, aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. Order their catalog. It is almost 300 pages of what I call motorcycle fun. It has everything you can imagine for motorcycling and stuff gets you thinking. You know, you look at the stuff and you think, oh, wow, I hadn't thought of that before or I didn't realize I could do that with my bike. Definitely a website you've got to check out. And to me, the catalog is something that should be in every motorcyclist's home. Don't forget, tell them you heard him here on Adventure Rider Radio.
Giant Loop Moto is the exclusive North American importer for Rally Raid products that's turning the Honda CB500 into the lowest seat height twin cylinder adventure bike on the market. It's supposed to be an amazing setup and everything that I've seen was very impressive. We did an episode on it a while back. You can check in our in our uh, past episodes for that. GiantLoopMoto.com is the website. Drop by and have a look. You're going to notice that they carry a lot of things other than just the things that they make on their website. It's a website you can go for adventure motorcycle stuff. One of the latest things they've got on here is the Giant Loop MOB Armor Smartphone Handlebar Mount, which just looks like a real cool way to mount your smartphone to your handlebar, your motorcycle, which is really neat because the smartphone makes an amazing GPS and really costs you nothing because you're already buying the smartphone anyways. You might want to consider that next time you're looking at buying a brand new GPS at the cost of, you know, three, four, five hundred dollars your smartphone may be able to cover it as well. But if you're running hard panniers on your bike, and you'd sort of like to run soft panniers every now and then, maybe you're running some trails and you know dropping your bike a lot, check out Giant Loop's round-the-world panniers. Um, they're a soft luggage system that mounts to your racks, your existing racks that you've already got for your hard luggage. Check them out, giantloopmoto.com. Use the promo code ARR. That's going to get you free shipping in the U.S. And anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Hey, if you're going to be in British Columbia, Canada in August, as a matter of fact, it's August 25th through 28th, we're going to be at Can West. We're going to be there on Friday the 26th recording live ARR Raw. Hope to see you there. Puget Sound Safety, or PSSOR, of course, is the home to Brett Tax, who you hear here on Rider Skills. And now PSSOR does world-class training. He does it for the military. He does it for the average rider. And you can simply go by one of his uh, websites there and check out the dates coming up for some of his events. And you can see, I mean, I'm looking at two of them here, ADV Riding Primer and Intro to Advanced ADV Riding Skills, sold out full. So you want to get over to his website, PSSOR.com, and check out some of the training camps because everything that we talk about in these interviews that we do here for Adventure Rider Radio, they're teasers, they're something to give you uh, things to think about, but to get the real deal, go see Brett, go see PSSOR and get some real hardcore world-class off-road training for your motorcycle. And here's a tip, you can probably sell it to your significant other by telling them it makes you a safer rider. Which it does. It's true. It's a win-win. You come out a safer, better, higher-skilled rider. PSSOR.com Well, once again, we have another Rider Skills segment with Brett Tax. Now, you know Brett because Brett is not only an advertiser from PSSOR, Puget Sound Safety Off-Road, but he's also a contributor, which makes him a valuable part of our team here at Adventure Rider Radio. Brett, welcome back once again. I'm, as always, really excited to be back and to talk with you and everybody listening. Well, today we're going to take a, a little bit of a, a break from our, I guess, our hard skills training and talk about something related but slightly different. Well, actually... Well, the first time we talked, you were just asking about training and we talked a lot about rider training and every time we chat, we talk about how to ride and, and safer ways to ride and the stuff we should have when we ride. But, you know, that's just a very small part of the training we really need to be adventure riders or to be safe when we travel. 
Sure. There's all types of things that we have to take into consideration over and above our riding skills, which means things that we pack and how prepared we are. But basically, I guess what we're looking at here is overall preparedness or doing your due diligence on your, your preparedness training before you go on a trip. That's exactly it. There's a lot of things that riders don't take into consideration. And this is actually a topic I do at a lot of the rallies, right? I'm brought in as a guest speaker and it's talking about what training every adventure rider should have. And it's amazing how many people come up to me at the end and go, I never thought of that. What sort of things are we talking about? So obviously rider training is an important aspect of it, but I, I don't want to focus on that today. But we're talking about uh, some basic categories here of you know mechanical training, you know, being able to repair your bike on the road or keep it running and maintain it. We're talking about medical training or you know, what if situations. We're talking about navigation training. Uh, preventive, you know, what can we do so that we know how to prevent things from happening or to deal with communication if something does happen. And uh, one that's probably a big one for a lot of people is motorcycle recovery. You know, what do, what do I do if I'm stuck in the mud? If I go over the side of a ledge? If, uh, if something happens where I just, I've got to move this big massive beast of a motor, motorcycle. You know, clearly we're not going to go into detail in all of these, but um, we can probably go through some lists of things to get people thinking about things that they should be looking at. Clearly, rider training, yes, absolutely. That, that's a given, something we cover a lot of uh, on this segment. Um, but let's look at the first thing you mentioned, medical training. Well, if we look at medical training, uh, I, I would say the majority of riders that go out have had first aid training. But the first aid training they have is usually something that's been related to their work or something that's a, a local based. And the, the objective of most of that training is if it, if it bleeds, plug the hole. If it doesn't breathe, blow into it and call 911. And in most modern areas or cities, you're talking three to five minutes before professional help shows up. So there's really no discussion or need to go into how do I stabilize a person if I have to leave them behind? What do I have to do if it's going to be days or maybe even weeks before I get professional attention? And this is the type of medical training or the advancement that I'm, I'm talking about we really need. You gave me an example there when we were talking earlier about um, dealing with somebody who was off the road and not that far away from help. Well, yeah, and it's, it's a, a story that I live because I... I I watched that person, I saw them that day and, and realized I have a background in medical. So I was an EMT, I worked for an ambulance company, I was part of a fire department for, uh, in my youth, I lived at the fire department. And so I'm pretty comfortable with these situations. And of course I lead tours and guide them and so I'm always around it. But this is one that scared me incredibly because I was on the side of the road with somebody I knew, I was watching their life slip away and I had no tools and no communication and it was just the two of us and it was terrifying. But we often think, oh my, yeah, we're, but we're way out in the middle of no place. And this was on a paved road. It was a forest service road, only 23 miles from the nearest town, but it was just far enough out. We didn't have cell phone service. There was virtually no traffic flow on the road. And it took us nearly an hour to get to that point because it was a nice, beautiful back twisty road. And it was, it was just absolutely terrifying. And had I not had the experience and the training and the ability to, to come up with a plan, you know, he, there, there's no doubt in my mind he would have died that day. 
And we were only going 35 miles an hour when he fell down. I mean, this wasn't like we were going really fast. This rider was equipped with all the top gear at the t- uh, of the day. I mean, he had all the right pants. He had all the right protection. He had a right, you know, he had a, a, a high-end, you know, full-face helmet. And at 35 miles an hour, he slid off the bike and hit a big boulder. He was trapped down about six feet below the, the height of the road and ended up with multiple life-threatening injuries. I think a lot of people think if they take a first aid kit, that's fine. You know, they're, they're sort of covering it that way. You mentioned some people or maybe even a lot of people have some training through work. Really, the kind of training we're talking about for this sort of thing is getting into wilderness first aid training. And that's exactly what I recommend to people. And, and certainly at our, at our school at PSSOR, we do uh, some medical training for motorcyclists and for off-road stuff. But what people really need are those training courses that are wilderness first aid or wilderness responder. So, you know, as an example, if you take a basic first aid class, almost always the priority is call 911. You know, get somebody coming out to you. But when you're out in the, out in the woods and there is no communication... The first thing, the most important thing is have a plan. I mean, that's before everything is have a plan and then figure out how to stabilize the person, how to get help or how to move them if you need to. And again, in basic first aid, you never, you almost never move anybody. And in this case, if you're out in the wilderness, that's not the number one rule anymore. Yeah, because quite often you're having to get someone to an evacuation point, which uh, may be some distance from where you are. And, but being aware of the fact that there is advanced training out there and it's well worth it because it, it's not necessarily just working on somebody else, just helping someone else. I mean, it can be yourself as well. Understanding how the body works and, and you know, the things that you can do in an emergency like that, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a really important skill for all of us. Yeah, and so I guess uh, my, my departing tip on this particular aspect would be if I was a rider, regardless of where I'm located or where you're listening to this, is find out what you can get locally. Check out the mountaineers groups, check out the hiking clubs, check out the outdoors groups. Most of them will have either a course you can take or know of one that you can get access to. And the second thing is, is don't buy the first aid kit off the shelf. Take the first aid kit that you're going to carry with you and consider where you're going, what you can multipurpose from your normal your normal kit. For example, I wear a schmog a lot of times. That's like one of those scarves uh, you see in the Middle East. And I bring that as a standard um, item that I wear uh, on my riding gear. But I can use that for triangular bandage or for blood stoppage. So it's a multi-purpose item. So I can minimize the size of my first aid kit. But if you have a first aid kit and there's anything in there, you don't know what it is or how to use it, either get rid of it or learn how to use it and build one that's appropriate for the environment you're going to be in. And again, on a motorcycle, yeah, you know, cuts and bruises and, and stuff are fine, but we're, too often things turn into very serious injuries. And so that's what we need to be ready to take care of. And um, most courses that you go to when they're advanced courses, they'll run you through what you should have in your first aid kit. Quite often they'll do even a, a first aid kit building section to the program to show you how to put your first aid kit together, how to sort it all out. Yep. Hopefully it's something people never have to use, but it's like buying insurance. It's it's something you need, but you only need it when things go wrong. And, and that's the same thing with the medical training. I, I, I'm lucky that I've never had to use that during one of our tours, but I'll guarantee you I have a very significant aid kit that I carry with me every single time just in case. So, all right. So medical is one thing that we need to think about, uh, but there's other things we should consider as well. So you mentioned navigation. 
Ah, navigation. <laughs> this is one, uh, again, I think the electronic access and the ease of access to tracks and routes is wonderful. You know, you have nonprofit groups like the Backcountry Discovery Route Group that have put together these wonderful routes in the United States that are off-road and they're 600 to 1,500 miles long. And all a rider has to do is go online and download the track and put it in their GPS and away they go. But often they don't even know the difference between a track or a route and how that works inside the GPS. They don't have any backup plan if the GPS fails. So they don't have any paper maps. If somebody gets hurt, they don't know how to get in or out of where they are or even where they are. They'll, they can open a map up and have no idea where in that entire route they are. And, and often they'll just bring the map that's not even a navigable map. So these are, these are the things I think riders fail to really consider before they head off into the, the wilderness. Yeah, one of the big things with the GPS is, first of all, it's great when it's working. And, you know, and quite often people will say, well, uh, you know, it's very reliable, maybe I have a backup, etc. I've actually had a GPS crash on me before. Not just crash, I've had plenty of them crash, but but actually stop working. I mean, it showed me off the coast of Africa and then back to where I was uh, again. It was, it was pretty bizarre. And it was a, a Garmin, a good quality GPS. Just one of those things that happen. It can leave you stranded, not to mention the fact that batteries, et cetera, can go. But one of the biggest problems that, that I find with GPSs is it's like looking at the world through a straw. You're looking at this tiny little section, and when you pan back and forth, it's very slow. So you'd mentioned about not knowing where you are. I think this is the problem is that people are fine as long as they can keep following that colored line that they've got lighting up on their screen. But if anything goes wrong, that colored line disappears, then all of a sudden it becomes a real problem to try and figure out exactly where they are, trying to take what they're seeing on the screen and relate it to a paper map. Well, and that's, that's why people hire guides like me to take them on adventure rides because I know the area and I know how to get out of trouble. And even if, and I've had this, I've, had, I've talked to guys that have done this where they've got up into the mountains and they had a problem, a mechanical or medical problem and they had to get off the mountain. And they'll type in the local city onto their GPS and it'll tell them how to get there. And next thing they know, they're completely lost because the GPS is sending them down roads that don't exist or that used to exist, or roads that were never put in because they get the, the map sets or the road sets from the Forest Service or you know where they're saying, hey, they were going to put a logging road in here. Well, if they never logged the area, the road doesn't exist. Uh, and so they, they don't know how to get out. They don't know how to look at the roads they have. And, and the other problem you have is what you just said, is they only, they're looking at this, this entire region through a straw. And so they can't figure out which roads are going to get them back to pavement quicker. Maybe it's not the shortest route according to the GPS. Or the GPS doesn't know those exist because they have no secondary roads at all. They're only a paved map. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big issue if something goes wrong. And luckily for most people, that doesn't happen. They have a track and they ride through and everything works and that's wonderful. And they come to the other end and they say, see, look, nothing bad happened. But that's, that's the perfect scenario. That happens in travel in general because we often hear people who go into areas that are considered to be, you know, hot, dangerous, and they, and I, I mean hot as in dangerous, uh, not as in temperature-wise, but then um, they'll go through the area and they'll say, well, I didn't have any trouble. I thought it was a fantastic place to travel. You know, the drug cartel didn't touch me or I met somebody and they were wonderful and everything was great. Yeah, and that's a, I hear the same thing. And, and as you know, I, I love to travel and I love traveling internationally. And, and this winter, you know, is my winter to ride Africa and I'm going to do the West Coast. And 
and I'm absolutely completely diligent and aware of the the dangers. And certainly, you know, I've spent time down in Central America and I also have never had a problem. You know, nobody's ever attacked us. Nobody's ripped us off. We've never been, um, had anything bad happen, but to believe that it can't happen, to be completely unaware of it, right, that's what people seem to forget is that the, the stories they hear of are from the people that are still here. But, you know, just last year I read about a writer who disappeared in Mexico in a, in a cartel war area and they just found his bike and then sometime later they found his remains. We didn't hear his story. And most of those, how many people, you know, wander off to do travels that they, they've already cut all connections. So they just disappear and we never hear from them. I think it's an excellent point. I think it's something that not to, not to fear monger, not to tell anyone, you know, don't go travel. And I know you're not doing that either, but to say, do your due diligence, you know, be aware at least of the possibilities and be prepared with things like your first aid and your navigation backup and all the other things that you need to, to travel safely in areas so that you can be able to go off the beaten path or maybe run into an area that may be somewhat uh, dodgy to go through. My scenario would be you could have someone run through a minefield. And if they make it, they might say, hey, you know, there's nothing wrong with that field. I've just ran through there. Maybe they ran through twice and they're fine, but that's not going to be the same experience, which is exactly what you're saying for someone else that goes through that same field. So I think it's it's sort of foolish of us to look at some of these things when we hear of these dangers and we hear of problems and just sort of say, eh, it's, it's nothing. I, I think you have to, you know, take heed and, and listen to it and then um, act accordingly. No, I, I completely agree. To, to not travel because you're terrified of the world, that's a little over the top. To travel the world and think that the entire world is safe and, and has open arms is foolish. And, you know, for us, we need to be somewhere in the middle. And right. We need to be prepared, but... But also, you know, take the world in and, and open our arms and, and explore it. And that really kind of takes us, if we're looking at categories, one of the categories I kind of mentioned was prevention. And prevention comes under, uh, there's a couple things that fall underneath that category. And one of those is just mechanical training. Because as we talk about dangers, a lot of times the longer you're in a certain area, the more danger you're in. And so being able to keep your bike from not failing uh, or to be able to make quick repairs can, can keep you out of that or minimize the, the risk of harm or, or theft or whatever may be the threat for the area you're in. Just before we leave navigation completely, so um, what do you recommend that people take? It, you, you, I'm, I'm assuming it's a GPS and a paper backup. Well, I, there's actually several things. And we, it's a wonderful time to, to be in the world because I think a lot of people, including myself, are relying more and more on smartphones, you know, their iPhone or their, or their handheld device and using those for GPS work. And I've found them to be as reliable or in some cases more reliable than my dedicated GPS. Yeah. So I actually carry both. I have maps on my phone. I have maps on the GPS. So I have a redundancy in my system. I um, carry paper maps as many as I can for the area and realize if you travel globally, that's impractical or maybe impossible. But again, you can talk to locals. Uh, also become familiar with old school compass work. Just knowing how to dead reckon and how to, how to figure out where you're at, uh, how to read terrain features and triangulate your location. And on the road is a little different than mountaineering or hiking, but the process in many ways are easier. I mean, we travel through places much quicker, but we also have roads and cities and things like that that we can use to help triangulate and, and narrow down the area that we're actually at. So if we have to go from 
uh, electronic navigation to a manual navigation, we have that ability. And it's the same as you mentioned about first aid training. You can find navigation training in, in a bunch of different forms because I know that um, they do that sort of thing at the hub meets and different places like that. And it's fun. You know, all of this stuff, it's fun to learn. It just sort of expands your comfort zone and, of course, expands your knowledge base as well. But with navigation, it can even be as simple as knowing what some handrails are. Maybe there's a river flowing in your area that flows in, in a, a direction, you know, continuous north, south, east, west, whatever the case it is, and you, and you can use that as a handrail. Maybe it's the road you're on and use that. And a handrail is sort of a, a reference line. But it's just understanding those few things that could really save you a lot of hassle, a lot of aggravation if you get into trouble because a lot of people will figure oh no you can't get lost it's very very easy to get lost especially if you get into um the uh, the non-used tracks and especially when night comes and that's usually what happens is you end up being a little bit longer than you planned on then it starts to get dark that's when things get complicated incredibly yeah and you know and i live in the pacific northwest in the washington you live up uh, just north of me certainly we know that the moth does not grow on the north side. It grows on all sides. And it's quite often we don't ever see the sun. So using the sun or something else to, to try to navigate, you know, east, west, north, south doesn't work. So again, having compass as a backup and knowing how to use it is important. And, and we, it's important enough that we incorporate this into both our adventure camps and into our, our backcountry adventure tours, you know, the expeditions that we guide, navigation and paper navigation and compass navigation is part of that training because it's, it's extremely critical. And we'll stop and go, okay, where are we at? If we had to get out of here now, how would we do that? What would you guys see? And, and they have to learn that. And they have to track our movements as we go along so we're not just relying on the GPS. And we try to build that so it becomes a habit. Otherwise, they do it once or twice with us and never do it again. Well, if they go up in the mountains and they've done 70 miles, it's pretty hard to keep track of where you're actually at on the map or if you made a wrong turn and go, hey, do I even recognize that? So we try to build that into a habit. And it's something that people can do on their own. Brett, you mentioned mechanical training here, and uh, it's, it's interesting. I just interviewed somebody not long ago who um, couldn't repair their own tire, and they were on a trip, and, and they didn't worry about it. That's what, that's, they, they understood they didn't know it. They figured they could call for help, and they thought they were always within range of calling for help. And I, and I guess everybody has their own ideas of what makes them feel safe. The due diligence part that I'm referring to is the fact that at least understand, okay, if I can't change to a spare tube or repair a tube, then I at least understand the consequences. You know, I understand what I'm going to be up against. What would you recommend would be the basic mechanical knowledge? Would it be tire repair? Would it be tire and chain? Would it be what? Well, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned a crack crankcase. Maybe you want to talk about that story first. Well, I actually... Uh, I can talk about all these because I've certainly been around flats and bent rims and broken chains and busted engine cases. And, and very often it's riders I come across, uh, not riders within my group or myself, because again, we teach people how not to do that. <laughs> but of course, it's always possible. And this was actually, I was doing a, a tour for a, for a motorcycle manufacturer. I had a large group and the CEO had flown out and wanted to go and see one of the, the Vistas that we took the group up to. So it was just the two of us going up to see this Vista. And as we came down the mountain, there was a, uh, 
an area with some heavy rocks and sharp rocks. And I went down just below him to take some pictures and he never showed up. So I went back up the hill and I found him standing there and his bike was bleeding all over the crankcase and all over the trail. Well, he had caught a sharp rock that had just kicked up from the front tire and sort of catapulted up underneath the engine case. And he never fell down, but it hit hard enough to actually dent the skid plate and to punch the engine case. And so it had a large crack in the bottom of the engine case and was leaking oil all over the place. And we're up in the mountains and we're actually in a forest fire area. So we're watching the glow of the forest fire in the distance and the sun setting down. And now we have a bike bleeding all over the trail. And it was certainly a crazy situation to be in. Right. So, I mean, there's going to be some people like yourself who can go ahead and clean that up, do a fast repair. I mean, if it's, if it's doable, you know, depending on what, how bad the damage is. And then there's going to be others that will never be able to tackle it. But what did you do with that? Well, in this case, it was a, a, a simple repair. We put the bike on its side so it wouldn't leak any more oil. We wiped it up because we had things with us. We scraped the engine cases clean of all the paint and powder coating. And I carried a product called JB Weld. So it's a, a metal uh, patch, basically. And we mixed that up and we patched up the hole. And we sat and watched the sunset while it cured because it was a quick cure that we had. Stood the bike up, put it all together, and we, we made it down the mountain. Now, we got at the bottom of the mountain. It was really dark, and this was a pretty novice off-road rider. So it took us quite a while to go down, and we took our time so nothing got hurt. But it would have been a completely different situation because, again, we had no cell service where we were at. Um, we were on roads where there was no other traffic at all. There, there just nobody was going to ever come. And we were a long way by foot to get down the mountain. I think we were still maybe 25, uh, 30 miles inland from, from the nearest paved road. So it, it could have been a far different experience than, than what we had. But it's a simple thing to do if you know how. And when people aren't ready for that and they don't think about, what if my chain breaks? What if my tire blows out? What if I can't patch the tube I have? What if I dent a rim? and at least know how to do that or how to acquire the tools to do it, you're kind of in a bad spot. And for those who don't know already about JB Weld, it is an amazing product, the two-part epoxy. You've got two different tubes that you mix together, and it does incredible repairs that you would not believe. So something that's well worth finding out about, learning how to use, maybe practicing a little before you take it out and having it with you. I just had one on a last ride I did with my buddy. His rad started spewing fluid out on the ground and um, that's what we used to fix it. We put JB Weld on it and he managed to get home and he ended up replacing the rad. But it, it took what could have been for us in the place we're in, we're sort of at the, the end of this very long road on the West Coast. And um, it would have been at the very least, a huge pain in the butt to sort out getting his, his motorcycle out of there. Instead, it just turned out to be, I think we were an hour and a half maybe doing the repair and um, then just a quiet ride home. Well, and, you know, there's a couple of items and you asked, you know, kind of what my list would be. And there's some things that seem to kind of sit at the top of the list, depending on whether it's a, a weekend adventure or whether it's a very long-term adventure. But flat tires is a must. If you can't fix a flat tire and you're going off-road, um, you're really going out and asking for trouble. I mean, even dirt bikers know how to change their tires on the side of the road because things can happen and nobody's coming out to you. So, you know, flat repair, uh, broken chains can be a big deal. But carrying extra links with you and knowing how to change them on the road, uh, that's one that actually I had a chain failure uh, because of, of grit and grime in Colombia, and eventually the chain failed and we had to make a, a repair on the side of the road because we couldn't find chains. They just didn't make chains that big 
in the area. And I've seen other people just catch a rock that gets pulled up in the sprocket and actually snaps or damages the chain. And they have to take a, a, a couple links out and put new links in. So they carry extra masters and a couple extra links where they can make those repairs. It's not a big deal if you have it with you. Um, you know, seal replacements on the forks where they can leak oil all over. Bent rims are not uncommon. Cracked engine cases. And a lot of times a bike just tipping over and landing on a rock. You know, and you end up with a side case, you know, which is probably very much what you had. The other things people don't always think about is just piecing the bodywork back together. If you fall down and you break bodywork, do you have the zip ties? Do you have some kind of tape or duct tape to, to put it back together? You know, strip bolts where things vibrate loose and fall out. Do you have replacements? Can you do that? And my favorite, and I've seen many people do it, and luckily I've never had to do it for my own bike, but submersion recovery. What do you do if your bike decides to go swimming in a, in a crossing? And those are, those are really kind of high items on the list. You know, and as a dirt biker, I actually carry wheel bearings in my dirt bike bag. That's such a common failure for off-road use that I have them with me and I can change them right there in the staging area. And as an adventure rider, I've seen, you know, wheel bearings on bikes blow out or head bearings go out. And it's not difficult to repair if you know what you're doing. And those are parts you can source almost anywhere if you know what you're doing. You mentioned recovery. I did. And so this was, uh, this was fun. I think the most incredible photo opportunity I've ever seen was I was uh, with a group riding up through Alaska and I came up to this, this wide crossing. It was probably 45, 50 feet wide with a fairly strong current going through, but also relatively shallow. And so for us, it was probably maybe mid-shin deep at the deepest part. But with a, a strong current, that's significant. And so I read, I got out there and I walked along and I poked around the water and figured out my strategy. And I, I worked my way across, I got to the side and parked. Well, the next rider comes around, he sees me on this uh, other side. Instead of getting off and looking at it, he just goes plowing through full throttle and buries his bike. And I'm just looking, there's a handlebar sticking up in the air. And, <laughs> and about three of the riders did exactly the same thing. So we have four bikes and luckily we're all on KLR 650s at the time. So these are bikes uh, that just, they're really hard to kill. Yeah. You, know, you can damage them. You just can't kill them very easy. And so we spent the next two hours as we took these bikes and had to remove the spark plugs and open up the air boxes because they were completely underwater. So we had to, to drain those out. We had to drain the fuel or the, the fuel out of the, the float bowls. And luckily there was no water in the fuel tank uh, and they hadn't ingested any water into the engine cases. But we had to stand them up on end to drain the water out of the exhaust. And this whole process, although time consuming, if people didn't know how to do that, or more importantly, didn't have the tools, it would have been dead in the water. That's almost a joke. But <laughs> so it was definitely something I think people need to be aware of. And, and a lot of those crossings, if you're traveling internationally, you just don't have an option. You either turn around and go back or you find a way to get across because a lot of times it's because the bridge is gone. And that's why the water crossing exists. All of the stuff that we're talking about can make the difference between an adventure that you go back and you, you have a good chuckle over or a fiasco. Yep. So here's my tip for riders on the mechanical part. Take your bike and do, learn to do the basic maintenance. Start there. And if nothing else, learn to change a tire. But when you do that, do it only with the tools that you carry on the motorcycle. And the best way to build a toolkit for the motorcycle is go around and put a socket or a wrench or a screwdriver on every single item you can find, every bolt, every nut, every screw head, and write that number down on a piece of paper. And that's your toolkit. 
And then you can go down and you purchase whether they're expensive tools or inexpensive tools and just pull the tools needed for your bike so that you can make those, you know, remove your tire and do a tire repair. And then anytime you do maintenance on your bike, uh, oil change or any kind of body work removal, use the tools on your toolkit. And if you're missing something, add it to the list. And that way, when you're on the road, you'll know you have all the tools capable of making on-trail or on-road repairs. Yeah, and you'll find if some tools don't work properly, you know, you get it and you think, geez, you know, a quarter drive just doesn't do this. I've got to go up to a three-eighths drive for this. Or, or maybe, uh, you know, your wrench handle isn't quite long enough. Whatever the case is, you'll find that stuff when you're doing your basic maintenance rather than when you're out there having to do a repair or you, you look and you think, oh, I don't have a socket to fit this nut to take the front wheel off. It's so important to do that while you have the safety of your garage there. Well, and, you know, changing a tire can be really frustrating for the first time you do it and doing it in your garage when you have days to get it done. But learning to do that when you're wet and cold and it's dark and your bike is covered in mud and you're missing tools, that's not the best way to learn that. Do you think this is a comprehensive list for people or at least somewhat comprehensive list for people? Well, it's not the comprehensive list and, and we could spend a lot of time going through all the details and you know it's not real feasible to do, but even things like motorcycle recovery, I had mentioned how to get bikes you know, out of stuck mud or winching or learning to use ropes and leverage or, or to go take a climbing class. You can learn, learn how to use knots and pulleys. Uh, you could do things, we didn't even talk about personal security, uh, learning how to become more aware of your environment or recognize threats or how to protect yourself. You know, because if you are traveling, you know, most of us aren't going to go traveling around with a big knife or a gun on us. And if we did, it would probably get us in more trouble than, than not. Mm -hmm. So that's not a real feasible option. We haven't talked about, you know, the alternatives to the cell phone. What about personal locator beacons or um, spot devices? I know you've had many shows where you've talked about some of these other, other things that are available. Um, they have some wonderful uh, two-way communicators now like the, the DeLorem. You know, so there's some wonderful two-way communication devices like the DeLorem where you're not just sending a one-way message, but it goes two ways. So there's a lot to be done, but just at least thinking about the categories as a rider going, do I have the proper rider training so I'm not going to get hurt and I don't break my bike? Mm -hmm. Do I have the proper mechanical training so I can keep my bike from breaking and I can fix it if it does? Do I have the proper medical training so if something goes bad, I can keep somebody alive or keep myself alive until I can get professional help? Do I know how to get out of out of where, the, where I am? Do I have navigation training so I don't get lost or don't wander into some place where I shouldn't be? Do I have the prevention? Uh, do I have communication, two-way communication or one-way? What's my plan? Do I have a satellite phone? And then uh, the last one, just recovery. You know, do I know how to, you know, like I say, get my bike out of those stuck situations and winching and mud recovery and picking it up? You know, what do I have to do if I need to tow one bike? Do I know how to tow a motorcycle with a motorcycle? Do I know how to load it into a vehicle and strap it down safely? And if we just look at those categories and we can prepare and think of the worst case scenarios, then I think we're going to be a lot more, lot more prepared and more likely to come back and just have some really wonderful stories because some of the best stories are the ones where things didn't go 100% right. That's the adventure part, isn't it? You get into a situation, but you're able to sort it out rather than it becoming a huge ordeal. Well, even on the guided tours, we have support vehicles, instructors, I'm there, we know the area, and I always make the announcement when we start, hey guys, the adventure begins when the plan stops. 
<laughs> and inevitably, it never takes very long before the adventure begins. And when that adventure begins, you're saying when the plan stops, it's part of your whole planning and your research that you've been doing that we're even just talking about here is making yourself more prepared so you're able to handle things. It's almost like a toolbox, isn't it? You've got these tools there, all these different tools. So when something does go wrong, you're able to turn to those tools, even if they're mental tools, and sort out your problem. And probably the best part of this is exactly that. There's more mental to this and awareness and personal training than there is to supplies. People will spend countless hours researching motorcycles or what skid plate they want mm. or what panniers they want to use. But they don't put any research into how to take care of a medical problem if it happens out in the wilderness. You know, we quickly went over emergency communication. I just want to touch on that for just a minute. You talked about uh, PLBs and trackers and two-way communications, cell phones and sat phones and things like that. Recently, we've been trying the InReach, which is the two-way communicator with the texting. What an amazing tool. And I, I really would highly recommend that people look into something. I know some people will say, oh, I don't need anything. You can save search and rescue, at the very least, a lot of time hunting for you if you have something like this. And nowadays, with them being so available... It just seems almost foolish to not take something, especially when you're heading into the backcountry. Well, and there's, there's a ton of devices out there that are available and, and from a whole different array of cost price point. I, I'd say the personal locator beacons, which are probably the most effective to get a signal out, are in the long term probably the cheapest option because you can push the button. There's no annual membership fees or anything. It just sends a signal out and help comes to you. But of course, this only works if you're in an area where help is around. A lot of these devices are only good when you're in North America or in Europe or other developed areas. Once you start going into places like, you know, Colombia or Bolivia or Botswana, you're kind of on your own. So you, that's where these other skill sets come in because you may be the only one on your own. I, I was mentioned on the medical and we've been talking about the emergency, but we don't talk about... You know, what happens if, God forbid I say this word, diarrhea? <laughs> you know, there are, it can happen. You know, you, it can kill you. You know, there are things you can get. Do you have the medical stuff with you, the pills you need to stop that so you can survive, you don't become dehydrated? And a lot of things like the cold medicines we take, if you start looking at the ingredients, you'll notice that there's a very small list of ingredients for all this stuff that's on the shelf. And you can carry some very basic over-the-counter medicines uh, that you can blend together and mix depending on the type of illness that you're dealing with. So, Brett, to finalize things, are we going to put out a list so that people can go through and, and look at some of the things they should be considering? Well, before the show, I compiled uh, a list of what I consider the most essential of those skill sets. And I'll send over a copy of that for you and you can post it up and people can go onto the show notes, take a look at them and, and hopefully just recognize that it's not a comprehensive list, but it's certainly a very thorough list to get started. Okay, so that's what we'll do. We'll, we'll post it in the show notes, the list of things that you might want to consider and um, take it from there. And, and you mentioned that you have some videos as well on tire changes, et cetera. We'll put some links to those in the show notes as well. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, again, I invite listeners to come out and ride with me and do some of the adventure tours that we take people up in the Cascade Mountains or do some of our adventure training where we get to offer this hands-on because all the things I talk about here are the things that we teach during those different programs that we do. Brett, thank you very much. It was fun. It was a blast and I'm looking forward to the next one. 
And that was Brett Tax from PSSOR.com or Puget Sound Safety Off-Road. And we're going to put links to his website and the videos that he has on tire changing in the show notes, as well as we're going to put that list in there in the show notes. So drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com and look at the show notes for this episode. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, serving adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, and get this, it comes with a lifetime warranty. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motor Tech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. Greenchiliadv.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. My name is Jim Martin. I'm happy to have you listening to the show. I want to give a special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. Hey, if you like what you hear, you want to keep the show coming to you for free, consider dropping by our website and clicking on the donate button. Anything over $10 is going to get you a gift sent back in the mail to you in the form of a sticker that you can put on your bike. Love to see the photos of those stickers. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. No excuses now. See you next week. Natasha Martin. I'm David Reitman. I'm Elizabeth Martin. I'm Sam. I'm Jim. You're listening to Avenger Ride Radio. All right. <laughs> <laughs>